Okay, you guys, we're on live. Welcome from home and welcome those who are here. Second Corinthians chapter two. We're going to finish up the chapter verses 12 through I think 17 and uh, move deeper into second Corinthians, which is a blessing because the deeper we get into it, the better the writing becomes. All right. So let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing the word of God, set the music. We'll sit in silence and we'll come back and talk about what Paul has to say. Some interesting things to bring to the table this afternoon. Lord, we love you. We gather together. We're seeking to know you. And by your spirit, we don't want falsehood in our lives. And I'm going to say things that are wrong. And, uh, and, and people listening to me will think things that are wrong. That's why we come to you. You are the spirit of truth. And so we pray that you will illuminate our minds and open our hearts to the things you want us to know and that our relationship will be strengthened in you. We're grateful for our volunteers, people who keep things going, and uh, just grateful to be able to take the time in this uh, place freely to study your word and consider you openly. And we, we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. That if you...
Okay. Um, continue forward in 2 Corinthians, wrapping up this chapter of chapter 2. Paul continues with the furthermore. Remember, he's writing, and again, the writing has been kind of scattered. It's just been kind of a, this is on my mind, I want to talk about this, this is this. And he's been trying to sort of explain why he hasn't come to Corinth as they anticipated. All right, so let's read at verse 12. He says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord... I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we Christ. Now, in Paul's manner of speech in this uh, book, it's a little bit heavy in the King James. It's a little convoluted, but he's going to be ta he's talking about some things here that are pretty interesting. And the interesting thing, too, is you're going to have to ask, who is he really speaking of here? Because Christians will read this. They'll read, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. And we'll just say that's talking to me. I'm reading the Bible. It's talking about me. Paul's not talking about you. He's not talking about me, and we're going to discover that as we move forward into this. So let's go back to verse 12. He's been talking to them last week, and he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was open unto me of the Lord. So he's just explaining to them that what was on his mind when he came to a place in Asia Minor called Troas. All right, this was what was on my mind. He says that he came there, a place that had great missionary success. All right? And, but when he got there, he was deeply distressed, he says. He was troubled in his spirit because he expected to meet up with Titus. And he didn't. And the reason he expected to meet up with Titus is Titus was going to tell him, listen, what you wrote in 1 Corinthians, which wasn't called 1 Corinthians to them, but what you wrote in your first letter to the believers at Corinth, that was very effective. They took your advice. They did what you said you, uh, you wanted them to do. And it's been a wonderful thing, Paul. But Paul gets to Troas and he doesn't have this experience. And so he's troubled in spirit. And he leaves Troas where uh, he says that a door was opened to him of the Lord. He leaves that place and he goes to Macedonia. Now, Troas is in a place called Phrygia, and it's on the Hellespont. For those of you who are geographically inclined, it's between Tro Troy on the north and assess on the south. And you read about this when we covered Acts, chapter 16, verse 8. We've read about Paul's travels here, all right? So it was on the regular route from Ephesus to Macedonia, Troas. And Paul took that route because on the journey to Macedonia, he had resolved, for reasons not stated, 
as I'm headed to Macedonia, I'm not stopping at Corinth. And he's been criticized for this. You aren't coming to Corinth. And, and as an apostle, there are naysayers saying, why aren't you coming here to visit us? So why he selected Troas as the field to, shake, to share Christ doesn't say. We don't know. But he was most likely there, as he's mentioned, waiting to see Titus. He thought for some reason that's where he was going to meet up with Titus to get news about Corinth because he didn't stop there. In any case, while he's there, he says, a door was opened unto him of the Lord. Now, when we read that in scripture, if someone even today says, you know, I was um, visiting Greece on a vacation and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, we automatically know what that means. God did something to open or pave the way for that person to do something for God. So Paul says, when I go to Troas, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. That's what happened there. And when a door opens of the Lord, it's typically a good thing. But listen to what Paul says at verse 13. But I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from there to Macedonia. So in other words, while the window of opportunity that the Lord had given me was opened in Troas, to stay there and have a great harvest, it seems, and to share Christ with the people there, I was distressed in my spirit, and I was so distressed in my spirit, I didn't even stay. That's remarkable. That's a remarkable thing to admit in this letter. I didn't even stay. I went on to Macedonia, perhaps trying to find Titus to get news of what was going on in Corinth. So taking my leave of them, meaning even though that door of opportunity had been open for me there, I was so troubled by not talking to Titus about you guys in Corinth, I left and went to Macedonia. In Acts chapter 16, verse 9, which we've covered, we talked about his travels and how he went on to Macedonia. And again, Paul apparently expected to find Titus to talk to him, but it didn't happen. So this is one of the few instances where Paul admits you know, the door was opened of the Lord to me. I didn't take advantage of it. It really is kind of, he's kind of admitting that. I left where the door of the Lord was open for me, and I went on to another place. Now, we don't know if that should be to his shame. We don't know what was happening, and so we can't really criticize it. All we can say is Paul admits that the Lord was making things happen there, but I left that place. I don't know what to mean of it. It's interesting. Paul left the promising field of labor because he was personally distressed, he says. I was really perplexed in my spirit. So I'm not going to try to explain what that means. I'm not going to try to say, when the Lord opens a door, you should remain in that place and, and continue on in that place until it dries up and then move to another. Paul obviously didn't. We have an example of that. If whatever reason you're moved to do something, you do it, and that's between you and God. So at verse 14, he enters into some interesting language. He says, now, after having admitted that Troas was a profitable place and he left it because he was troubled in spirit, he says, now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. All right. Now, Paul is using some terms here. 
he uses us here and he uses we in some verses before. Again, when you're reading that, is that talking to you and me, the reader now? Or is he talking about the believers that in that day? Or is he talking about himself as an apostle when he says us and we? Um, but before we answer that, he says, Thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now, I would suggest that Paul here is talking about himself as an apostle. I would suggest that Paul here, from the, here to the rest of the chapter, actually through the next several chapters, Paul is going to be talking about himself and what God has done through him as an apostle and other apostles like him. Perhaps other leaders of the church at that time. But when we read us or we there, he is not talking to us as believers. That will be proven in just a second. So there's a few key words to focus on here in verse 14. And the first is he says... Thanks be to God, he gives thanks to God, ready, which causes, always causes us to triumph in Christ. Okay? Paul had abandoned uh, Troas. It was an open window to him there. He abandoned it. It was a fruitful place because he was troubled over missing Titus and getting a report about Corinth and receiving a letter. So he goes somewhere else to Macedonia. But in spite of his actions, Paul says, that there is reason to give God thanks. Now thanks be to God, even though I did this, he says, adding, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. We can take that passage, you guys. I'm sure there are t-shirts out there where people say, it's, it has on the t-shirt, we, uh, we give thanks to God because he always causes us to triumph in Christ. That may be a true statement, to the individual believer. But if we are talking about the truth of Scripture, Paul is talking about himself as an apostle here. You can assign that to yourself in faith. You may be right. Any believer may be right. But Paul is talking about himself. In other words, we will take courses of action, sometimes which may not appear to be the best. Troas was an open, fruitful place to share Christ, and I walked from it. But thanks be to God, who always, he says, causes us to triumph in Christ. It seems Paul was joyful because when he gets to Macedonia, what does he find? Titus. And who alleviated him of all his personal stress of what was going on in Corinth. And that was a great blessing. And they had followed Paul's uh, uh, directives on how to handle that man who was in sin with his father's wife. So Paul was very happy and blessed that when he gets to Macedonia, even though he left a place that was fruitful, he says, thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. How I met Titus, who I expected to meet in Troas. And in meeting Titus, I discovered in my letter to you, Corinthians, that you guys were okay. That seems to be what he's saying. The view Paul shares is one of consistent hope in the fact that he as an apostle triumphed in Christ no matter, always, no matter where he went or what he did. There was a victory in Christ. Can we apply it to ourselves? I certainly think we can. But contextually, Paul was applying it to himself. Another set of terms that are important to wrapping up this chapter in these verses because he's going to talk about these terms for the rest of the chapter, which is only three or four more verses. 
is he says triumph and he says savor. These two words, triumph and savor. And they're going to be part of what he says before he closes the chapter out and then continues in chapter 3 next week. For starters, he links triumph as an apostle that the triumphs are in Christ. So let's start with that. That a triumph for the apostle is always in Christ and uh, triumph in the life of a Christian is going to be tied to Christ. So what's, what's uh, the passage, Philippians 1.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's similar to that, that he is saying, I have, as an apostle, triumphed in Christ. To me, uh, victories of the flesh, while they're important here, we get the new business deal, we get the new contract, we, we do whatever. Those are good. They're great for this world. And we could even say, well, I've triumphed in Christ over this. Uh, but bottom line, these triumphs that Paul is speaking of are always in the cause of Christ and his body, his church, and reaching people with the good or great news. And so that's what I think he's speaking of. Victories linked to him, Christ, always ring true with, with eternality and with real purpose and with real power, with real truth, genuinely good, genuinely of him. Triumphs of this world, good, sure, and have purpose and meaning. We're really grateful for them. But Paul is talking about a different kind of triumphal thing, and we're going to talk about that. The word is threambuu, threambuu, and it's only used here and then in Colossians 2.15. The only time it's ever used in Scripture, but it is a word that was used in Greek antiquities. And because of how it is used in Greek antiquities, you know, back with Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all those dudes back 400 years before, the way that was used then, Paul uses the threambuu the same way here. And um, in Colossians 2.15, uh, 3MBU is used this way. Paul says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. That's the only other place in, in the New Testament where this Greek word is used. Well, what the word means, the way Paul is using it, is um, I want you to pretend that we live back anciently and you're in a Roman Colosseum and Rome has been at war with some other place and the war is over and the general of the war steps into the uh, Colosseum. That is the way Paul is using that ancient Greek word, threambuu, triumph. He's using it that Christ has the victory over everything and that is... Uh, the sense in which we should see it. It's interesting though, historically, the word threambuu came about because of a guy named Bacchus. Have you ever heard of Bacchanalian? It's used in the Christmas story. Bacchanalian festivals, Bacchus was the god of wine. And so a Bacchanalian festival was when they would get really drink, uh, really, really drink, and they would get really drunk, and it was like a bar song that they would sing. To Bacchus. And Threambuu, the triumph, is tied to that in its origins. Uh, what's interesting is that it progressed, and by the time we get to what we're reading here with Paul through the Greek and then the Roman culture, it was a solemn bestowal 
of victory upon a general who won in a battle. The, the victorious, triumphal uh, 3M Buu. So these events include, included what would happen is you'd have the Colosseum and you'd have these um, processions that would happen before the general stepped into the Colosseum. First, they would bring in the spoils of war. Carts would be brought in of the gold and the silver and the art or whatever you would take from a, a country that you defeated. And then come in would be the prince and the nobles and the kings that were taken captive from the other country. So they're all a, a, a prefaced before the general comes in triumphantly. And, uh, and then when the general comes in, he is brought in on a chariot and he's brought in with two white horses, right? So this is a spectacle of triumph. I have overcome and I have taken the booty from your country. You're, the kings and, and princes of that country are in my control. And now here I arrive uh, in a chariot with two horses. Well, Paul takes that and he says, as an apostle, we are entering in the Colosseum triumphant, triumphant uh, uh, over these things because of Christ. That's the imagery that he applies to. And someone who knew Greek in that day when they would read this, they knew what that meant, you know, that Christ has had this victory. So, by the way, there's a guy, a Bible commentator named Clark, and he clarifies a little bit on the double horse, white horse bit. He says, when Pompey, tri this is a quote, when Pompey triumphed over Africa, his chariot was drawn by elephants and uh, Mark Anthony by lions and Heliogabulus by tigers and Marcus Aurelius by deers, end quote. So historically, this is what would happen with great generals. They were preceded, the big procession, and then they came in and they had animals pulling them into this great spe uh, spectacle. So the people of Corinth, reading this letter from Paul, take his insights and they, understanding the setting of what, where he's using Thriambuu, they are, realize he is really touting the victories he has as an apostle uh, through Christ Jesus. What is particularly interesting is the triumph Paul is speaking about was simply meeting up with Titus in Macedonia. That's the triumph. I was in a place of great, the door was opened in Troas. I went to Macedonia and I was able to meet Titus, but guess what Titus told me? He told me, you dealt with that man like I told you to. And therefore, like he says uh, in the epistle, you now can take care of the problems yourself. I am so pleased that you're self-sustaining in your leadership and in your governance of the body there in Corinth. Uh, so when we first read this, it seems like that's overkill, Paul. You're assigning triumph of Christ because you ran into Titus and he gave you good news about uh, Corinth. But upon reflection, anything, anytime there are victories, it, do, it really doesn't really matter. If it's a victory in and through devotion to Christ, uh, that is a three ambuu. When you can overcome saying something that you normally would say sarcastically to somebody who bugs you, which is something I have to deal with in my life. When I can overcome that by Christ in me, that's a three ambuu. That's as victorious as a general coming into the Colosseum because why? Christ in us is leading us to be more like him.
And so we do glory in the triumphs that he will give us. So it seems like it's a little bit hyperbolic for Paul to use that word. But I think in reality, if we can overcome the flesh of our own self as believers and people on this earth, that's as big of a victory as a general overcoming another nation, perhaps even more. Because the difficulty in that for many people is really, really tough. So he adds, and make manifest the savor. So we have triumph. And now he brings in the word savor, Aussie, and or Osi, and uh, the savor of his knowledge in every place. He, God, makes known, spreads abroad the savor of his knowledge of all things like a pleasant fragrance that is diffused through the air. Now again, <clears throat> if we don't know what... Uh, ancient history Paul's referring to, we just read it and think, oh, we've read about triumphal entry. Now he talks about savor. Why would he do that? Well, what Paul is saying is that God makes his knowledge known by the apostles in every place like the savor of a fragrance would be known at the triumphal entry of a, of a successful general. It's believed that Paul is making an allusion here to that exercise because he, something I didn't tell you is that before the uh, general rides in with the elephants or the tigers or the deers or the horses, there are people throwing flower petals and fragrant things into the air and to make the whole procession smell wonderful in opposition to the stink of war. And so the sweet smell of victory is why he appeals, apparently, to this word osi relative to triumphal entry. And he is saying, so he now ties in this sweet smell to the whole idea. I mean, the, the processions were thought to be really, really fragrant. That's how you knew that something was going on. You're walking by, oh, something's at the Coliseum. You know, let me run over there. I grab a hot dog. So triumphal entry of the general was known by the fragrance. So Paul uses all this imagery and ties it to the victories that they as apostles are having in Christ. Making manifest the savor. That's the word I want to focus on. The fragrant smell. The savor but he uses it to God of his knowledge on how he works all things out by us in every place. There's that us again. Now, as a believer, you could say that's how he's working everything out today is through us. It might be true. But in this context, Paul is speaking of himself as an apostle. So in doing so, the wisdom and knowledge of God by Christ was diffused everywhere, he says, like a fragrance diffused around that signed that there was a victorious general in their midst. Now, there's that word us, really important. Throughout the next three chapters, folks, three chapters, Paul is going to be referring to himself, an apostle or the apostles, possibly some of the others involved in ministry in that day as the us. So you, if you are taking notes, challenge me, read the context, because this epistle, while we read it, is not speaking to you. It's speaking to them 
in that day of what he was doing as an apostle. If you're an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, today doing the same things that Paul was doing, you can assign it to yourself, I guess. But you just got to be careful with taking the scripture, reading it and saying, that's me, that's me. When in fact, context tells us in the next three chapters, when he uses us, he's talking about himself. And it's going to play an important role in something we're going to discover before we wrap this up. Okay? So his use of us, us distinguishes the believers and the recipients of the gospel that he was giving out from himself. Okay? And from other emissaries of the good news in that age. This makes these three chapters where Paul reveals his heart as an apostle, uh, this gives us reason why scholars say this second Corinthians is when Paul reveals who he is as a man and as an apostle more close, more clearly than anywhere else in his writings, because he's really just telling you a story from his own life as an apostle, which is why he uses the we and us uh, in that referring to himself and to possibly other apostles. But it's really tempting to believe that when he says us and we here, that we want to disassign it to us. And I'm sure that there's application, um, but just be careful as you read through it. So um, from this point on to the end of the chapter, three more verses, Paul speaks of what he has established using triumph and savor in the conversation. Now, look at next, the next verse, because this is where it's going to be important. For we, he says, speaking again, I will reiterate, of the apostles or of himself, are unto God, we are unto God, a sweet savor of Christ. That sounds arrogant, but that's what he's saying. In them that are saved and in them that perish. So we see him distinguished between the people who are being saved, that's the Christians of that day, even us who have been saved, and himself. He's obviously not talking about every Christian who's been saved here. That's why he refers himself as to we. He is saying, to, it sounds, I've had people say Paul was an arrogant guy. Uh, and he sounds arrogant in some of these things. Like when he'll say, follow me. I, I, I follow me or I have saved you. And he'll say these lines. Well, here he says a line, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. In them that are saved and in them that perish. So, in Christ, he says, we smell like the airborne fragrance of the petals that have been there in the triumphal entry of a general. <coughs> in the end, most think that Paul is speaking of his apostolic efforts to bring others to Christ. That is what he's talking about here at the end of this chapter. And in so doing faithfully, the victories that they were having over opposition were a sweet savor to the living God. And this is like reading a little segment out of Paul's personal journal. Uh, I, I'm in Salt Lake City and I've been here for uh, 12 years and I've been trying to serve the, the Latter-day Saints and, or, and the Christians here. And I know God uh, views our works as a sweet savor uh, to, his, to his nostrils. 
in my personal journal, I write that, which I wouldn't, but that's it's what it's like. And that's all Paul's saying. We are a sweet savor to God, okay? Now, of course, the imagery and idea of a sweet savor to God's nostrils comes from the Old Testament. When they would burn sacrifices on the altar and, they, and God would say, ah, oh, it smells good to my, to my nostrils. I like the smell of this sacrifice or it stinketh to me is the way it would be said. So Paul is appealing to that. We have offered up apostolic sacrifices to bring people to Christ. And we know through our works in Christ, it's a sweet savor to God is what he's saying. Putting it all together, due to Christ, Paul says, and their faithful work in serving him through his name, that they are a sweet savor to God through, through those who were saved and those who perish. Okay? Now, Paul was sharing the good news by which people would be saved and those who would reject it would perish. And Paul was a sweet savor to the nostrils of God for doing that. Not the ones who were saved and not the ones who perish. That's why I'm spending time to point this out. That's why I have emphasized so much that Paul's speaking of himself. Why? Because there are people that are called Calvinists. And they suggest that God loves the smell of a burning flesh of the wicked who have rejected him in hell. That it's a sweet savor to him. And that the, the righteous and the wicked, come either way, it's a sweet savor to God. Why? Because the righteous are a sweet savor to his mercy. And the smell of the burning flesh of those who are perishing is a sweet savor of his justice. And so they say, he, he glories in all of this. Let's read what Paul says here. And people skip over the idea that the sweet savor is talking about Paul's efforts as an apostle, not those who believe or reject him. You see? And it's an important clarification when you read scripture. So he says that in both respects, his labors, his labors were a sweet savor, whether they believed or whether they are perishing. How? Let's read the last three verses together. And he tells us, he says, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death. We, again talking about himself, folks. And to the other, we are the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. That last line's a little bit more cumbersome, but bottom line, he's saying, listen, I am not talking about those who, and their reactions being the sweet savor. God is pleased with our efforts. He opened a door for us in Troas. I decided to move on to Macedonia. He triumphantly showed that he had, did something wonderful there in spite of me leaving Troas. And there we had a great victory. And we, our works, our labors are a sweet smelling savor. Paul is just tying his works and labors to reaching people who are saved and not reaching people who are damned as the efforts that God finds pleasing. So note right off the bat that Paul does not say that those who are saved or those who are perished are the sweet savor in the knowledge of God. He does not say that. That 
he is speaking of himself and or the other ministers of the gospel. And in doing this work, whether they were successful in bringing people to faith or whether they were successful, ready for this one, in bringing people to perishing, bringing people to faith or perishing, their labors were a sweet-smelling savor. I know I've repeated this. Now, don't miss this or you'll make the mistake that some five-point Calvinists will make, that the burning are a savor as well as the saved. So, a couple of things. I'm convinced that in the New Testament, when it speaks of believing and being saved, I am convinced of this. It refers to two things. These two things are not part, they are not applied to us today in my estimation. You have to decide. First, when Jesus, John the Baptist, or the apostles talked to them about being saved, he was talking to them about believing on Christ Jesus so they could be saved from going to Sheol, the prison part. When you die, if you believe on Jesus between now and before he returns, if you die, you will be saved from going to the prison part of Sheol. If you believe on him, you will go to Abraham's bosom, the paradise part, and you'll be saved from the prison part of Sheol. That's the first part. The second save that scripture talks about in the New Testament, when the apostles or Jesus or John are talking about it, is saved from the coming destruction physically. If you want to be saved from the coming destruction, then you'll look to Christ and follow him and you'll be saved. That's what saved means in the two instances in my estimation of the New Testament. Now we read it, and in fact, if we're going to read it the way I see it, neither of those apply. Hell's been cast into the lake of fire because that age is over, and we will, we're not going to be saved from going to uh, the prison part of Sheol, and we're not going to be saved from being destroyed by Christ's second coming. So when we read about th either of those applications, I don't think they apply to us. What does it mean to be saved then for us? It means to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. It means to be saved to his kingdom and not to be part of what's outside of it. It means to be saved from our sin and in our sin and instead of roiling in the product of our sin, which is spiritual death. So they mean some different things, folks, when we read what the New Testament is actually saying. Now, I know it's easy to pick up that book and open it and just think saved means saved means they are going to live with God and not going to go to hell. But that really, even that isn't correct when we look at context of the New Testament. So the goal of the apostles was to reach the Jews first and to save them from going to the prison part of Sheol and to save them from being destroyed at the great condemnation that would come down in 70 AD. That was the original 12 apostles minus one, their job. Then Paul comes along, and his job was to get Gentiles of that age to believe and join in with the Jews so they too could be part of that kingdom because that was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would have access to that kingdom too, open to all. So those who would reject that message, you ready for a big word that we're going to talk about now? And we've talked about it before, but it's important. We're going to, Paul says, perish. So in your mind, as I'm drinking this wonderful health elixir, what does the word perish mean to you when you read that they will perish in Scripture? It's rhetorical. I recently heard a Southern Baptist on the radio, preacher, 
made a fantastic point. He said, you know, in our day and age, we have people who believe in this thing called annihilation. That's just a heresy from hell. There's no such thing as annihilation of the soul. When the word perish is used in scripture, it does not mean to annihilate. He was using it because he wanted to show that when people die, they will not be annihilated, which is kind of the politically correct Christian theme of the afterlife of people who still want to believe there is afterlife punishment for the evil, but uh, don't want to, can't really reconcile an eternal punishment from a loving God. So they have come up with, and this is uh, partially an extension from the Seventh-day Adventist, uh, Ellen G. White and her teachings, but they say they'll be annihilated. A merciful God will take them and just annihilate them. Well, this Baptist preacher made it clear. The Greek, perish, does not mean annihilate. So in his mind, what that means is suffering forever and ever and ever and ever, right? And so uh, the word, Greek word for perish is apulami. And our Baptist brother is correct on the radio. It does not mean annihilate. It doesn't mean obliterated. All right? Now, I, I read a couple uh, common commentators on this word, and even Thayer's, I think it was Thayer's, or it was, uh, could have been Strong's, says obliteration. When you read perish, it means to be obliterated. That's not true. It's not true. So we have to decide, you have to decide, what does perish mean when Paul says, listen, we are sharing something to the people who are saved and the people who perish. What does perish mean in the New Testament sense? Let's consider some other ways to understand perishing. Because if it doesn't mean annihilation, does it mean in your mind that they will experience perishing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in hell? which is the way that they say it, just the general term, or does it mean something else? Let me start with this. The word that is translated tormented, Jesus uses it a few times. It's used in Revelation. It, in Strong's and Vine's and Thayer's lexicons, it comes out as ba basidzo. Ba basinidzo. I'm sorry for my pronunciation. And basinidzo, this is what it means to take a touchstone on a knife blade that has been marred by me using it as a hammer. And it means to take that stone and to rub off those pieces of the blade that are bent and crooked and cut into because of my misusing the blade. You take a touchstone and uh, bassinizzo it, you are rubbing that down to get the, that, those snags removed. And that, that bassinizzo also is the same word that is used in Revelation to talk about brimstone. Fire and brimstone. Brimstone is the same word bassinizzo and it just means the thing that is going to come and rub off these parts of metal but in reality, in Scripture, it's talking about rubbing off the parts of the human soul 
that don't belong there. That's what it means, okay? So it means to put to the test by the rubbing of the touchstone. That's an idzo. Touchstones are flint rocks and they're stronger than the elements they're working against. And from this definition, we can see that the bad sinidzo, the torments and the brimstone that are connected to perishing in the Bible are talking about the perishing of the parts that do not belong there. And therefore we know it's purposeful. Therefore we know it has an objective that is based in improvement, not punishment. Not punishment. Improvement. When you take a touchstone to a, a, a dull uh, knife blade that's been marred and you use the time to work it, you're doing something that is beneficial. You're not angry at the blade, you're trying to improve the blade's condition. That is the context for brimstone, batsonidzo, for perish in the New Testament. So from this definition, we can see that the process of perishing, the process of perishing, is not one of annihilation, as the Baptist preacher pointed out, and it's not one of mindless, endless torture for torture's sake, the way that uh, Augustine made it popular because he hated his flesh so much because of his sexual deviancies. He wanted his flesh to be consumed and he created this idea of the flesh being consumed and consumed and consumed in the fires of hell forever. I find it interesting because in it we discover some loving meaning to the loving God who knew all things when he created us and to something Jesus says in Matthew 21, 44. Jesus had just given a parable about the wicked husbandmen. And I'm not going to tell it, but he essentially says to the scribes and Pharisees, or they say, I think, to themselves, is that who we are? And Jesus essentially says, yeah, that's who you are. And that's in Matthew 21, 44. In 43, Jesus says, actually, therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God should be taken away from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. This was prophetic. It's going to be taken from you. Okay? And it was. They had rejected the true Messiah. They had uh, done what he did to him. And therefore, Jesus tells them the kingdom is going to be taken. It's going to be given to the world of Gentiles who would bring forth fruit. Then he says this other line that's really interesting. I know we've talked about it before, but it, touch, it, it, it touches on this touchstone, brimstone concept. He says, right after, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. All right? The nation refused to fall upon the rock and be broken of their religious traditions, of their pride, of their money loving, of their selling of everything, of their, all their horrible stuff. They refused. And so he says, listen, if you don't fall on me, and he's talking to them then, then it, the stone, and I think he's talking about him, the rock, but he's also talking about the touchstone, will fall on you and will grind you down to powder. Meaning we, it will remove anything that does not belong and what will be left is powder uh, from what he seems to be saying. I would suggest in line of the meaning of torments, 
that are used with Bassanidzo in Revelation 14, and the fact that those who would not hear Paul and the other apostles said would perish, but that we, are, we aren't talking about eternal punishment here, but we are talking about being rubbed down. By what? We can make conjecture. It's the light of God. It's the love of God. It's the fire of God. We can say all kinds of things in conjecture. I don't know what it is. But there's something. But I don't believe a loving God applies those things for punitive reasons. I think he does it for loving reasons. And the thing about it is, I think my friend Dave here said years ago, you can choose to be rubbed down in this life because Christians are. We face it, and we're getting ourselves rubbed down. Or you can wait till the next. For some reason, maybe the next. I'm not saying it's worse. I'm just saying it might be more improbable in the next world. Perhaps those who have never had Christ or wanted Christ and are full of sin, who are outside the New Jerusalem, perhaps it's so wonderful in that state, in terms of what they think, that when they have an opportunity to walk into the city gates and be part that are open 24-7, they don't care to. Perhaps as they move toward the city, perhaps the, the rubbing becomes more intense of what's in them, and it's too difficult. They'd rather just go and bask in the darkness of their souls. So that is another reason why we know that it's important to receive him here and to go through your basinizo here, through the Spirit, which is refining us. Not a fun uh, prospect. Not fun. But Christians submit to it by the will of God so that you are being refined, so that entering into his presence is far, far, far more glorious than for those who haven't. Now, remember these few short facts which I've shared. Revelation speaks of those who have their part in the lake of fire. That was for that age. But it just says they have their part which means that once the part's done, it's done. It speaks of God's wrath being contained in a very small container, the cup of his wrath. Not the ocean of his wrath, not the eternal stream of his wrath, but the cup of his wrath, which means there's a limited amount of that wrath. Remember Jesus says that if you are a recalcitrant soul, you will be beaten, uh, some will be beaten with a few stripes and others many. That shows a difference in the Batsinitzo process and what the Catholics would call purging. There may be something to it, but that doesn't come from nowhere. Talking to my Catholic priest friend, that is certainly steeped in the things we're reading right here. And just remember that Jesus also said and in one of his uh, parables that they will go into the dungeon and not come out until they have paid the uttermost farthing, implying that they do come out. So I'm preaching this because I hope we can get away from the Augustinian uh, idea that this is a reoccurring punishment of the flesh forever and ever and ever. The scripture through the Greek words don't say that. But then there's the two Greek words. I'm going to go to the board and I don't think we need to do anything. And I'm going to try to spell them right. Uh, this is just Anglicanized or uh, Thelema and Bulema. Very important words when it comes to the subject of perishing, right? And uh, the, these, these two words, they describe the will of God. And you can see that the T-H-E is from theos. 
So we, it's, it's related to God. And the philema is God, I'll say it this way, it's God's hopes, his hopes. And uh, it's indicative of his desires. So he has desires. That might be looking back to the beginning, my desires are this, he knows it isn't going to happen, but he has desires. It's his desired will, philema. And uh, the second word, bulima, is his deliberate design, my will will be done word. Meaning, I say it, it's going to happen. Okay? Philema and bulima. So, desired will, purposed will. Now, turn to 1 Timothy 2, 3, 4. It's an easy one. 1 Timothy, there's a one. 2, 3, 4. Let's throw Timothy in there. And here we read this. You've heard it before. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto a knowledge of the truth. Again, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will. What is that word will translated in the Greek? Is it the thelema, that it's his desire, his hope? Or is it the bulema, that it will happen? Because that's why you decide what it means. So, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Guess what? People say, McCraney, you're a universalist. You say everyone's going to be saved. No, I don't. No, I do not say that. Never have. Not everyone's going to be saved. Most won't be saved from the purging, from the touchstone in their life. Not so. The English word will here in that passage is from the fellow and meaning that he desires. It's his hope that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's a good God and that's what he hopes. If eternal punishment is a reality, God will not have his hopes accomplished. For all men are not going to escape and not all men will be saved. Only a few, right? Scripture's clear on that. So I'm not, never saying everybody's going to be saved. This is the standard rationale of most Christians, though, that aren't Calvinists, that God is love. He really, really wants everyone to be saved, but his desires, his hopes can't be met because of our free will. So God's disappointed. We're disappointed. And that's it. You know, he desires that, right? Let's get a little bit more emphatic. Go to 2 Peter 3.9. Here is another verse that gives us another side of the coin. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Now that we're getting some emphatic language. He is not slack concerning the promises he makes. Okay? As some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not willing. What is that term in not willing? Is it thelema, his hope? Or is it bulema, his expressed will that will happen? It's bulema. So we know that though it is his hope, all would be saved and come to a knowledge of him, that is not the case. 
Okay, so perhaps outside the city gates in heaven, there will be many who never come into those gates that are open night and day. He wants that, but that's not the case. But that's a, that's a loving God now that we see sitting in the new Jerusalem with his son. That's him saying, I wish they would come, but I can't force them because I'm a good God. They have their choice, right? But when it comes to, I am not willing to let any perish. In the sense, it has to be, and I am making a con- jump here, of continually being rubbed away and rubbed away and rubbed away. I am not con- that any should perish, but I will have that all will come to repentance. We have a conflicting verse here. We have, we have two different sides here. And you have to kind of start to think in those terms when scripture points it out. Where it says God is not willing that any should perish, we are talking about Thelema. It's not that he, uh, we are not talking about Thelema. He is not saying, I hope they don't. Bulamai, Bulamahi is really the way to say it, is none will perish forever. None. None. So from these two passages, we see that it is God's desire and his exact purpose. One, he desires that they would be saved, but two, his exact purpose, that none will perish and all will come to repentance. How it plays out, can't say. That's just conjecture. But we do know that there is a plan here in place said by the scripture that shows God has a distinct will that he will not allow this idea that we push around on people to occur. So from these passages and passages like these, we're confronted with a serious breach of intellectual uh, and spiritual conflict because you can't have all these things and have a good loving God. The breach is that a sovereign God who knew and knows from the beginning to the end that he cannot do what he wants when it comes to the salvation of humanity. That he cannot stop from the redemption or reconciliation of all humankind. That's impossible for him because our free will, Satan's power, darkness's power, trumps him. That is inconsistent with the idea of a sovereign, good, loving God. And I have to add that. So, um, and you know what the Calvinists say. I'm not going to go into it. The Bible suggests that in and through this beautiful approach, God maintains being love, sovereign, respecting the free will and choices of every individual, is just, is merciful, is all-knowing, and his desires and hopes and pleasures will be met, and so will his expressed will. I suggest today, after studying the New Testament, that the perishing of the former age for the house of Israel is over. I suggest that process is over in the sense of uh, lake of fire, uh, prison, part of hell. I suggest it's over, and God does not have any perish that's his will, and all come to repentance through what Christ victoriously did. That is the way I see it now. It does not mean that everybody or any, many will be in the uh, New Jerusalem, but it does mean that he does not go back on what his will is, especially in the expressed will. So, um, a couple more things. There is meaning in the term lost. Uh, uh, which is translated from the same root word as apulami, 
uh, for perish. Loss comes from the same thing. So Jesus paid for all the sin of the world, paying the debt for all and redeeming all to the same extent that the first Adam corrupted it. First Adam corrupted the entire world and everybody in it. We are the inheritor of that. The second Adam redeemed it all, paid for it all, brought it all back into harmony. I don't have a problem with that. So seeing the redemptive work of our king in this manner enables us to see those who we say are lost. They're just lost, right? They're going to perish. They're going to be destroyed. Those three words, same Greek word, apulami. Same word. King James uses destroyed, lost, and perish synonymously. So they are lost in our mind due to their sin, many Christians' sin. But in reality, they, their sin has been paid for. Whether they're lost in is they haven't yet received the faith that Christ has provided. They have yet to receive what God is going to give them. Okay? The question you're asking and I'm asking in my mind is, well, they better do it before they die. That's another Christian thing we've come up with somewhere. They better do it before they die. Now, remember, we say that because we read the New Testament. In the New Testament, our apostles talking to Jews and some Gentiles in that day where the end of that age was coming and Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And they were saying, you better do this before that happens. And so we read that context and we say today, you better do this before you die. Now, certainly there are benefits, tremendous benefits to knowing Christ in this day and age and to have him with you. That is a reward in of itself. Forget about afterlife uh, rewards in heaven. That is a reward in and of itself to know God in this life. That's what I would say. That's the reward. But when we take the New Testament and assign it to the same thing here, I'm not sure it's, it's, it's fair. So we tend to look at people as the sinful, or many Christians do, and the ones who are not worthy. And when we do that, guess what we do? We say we are worthy. They're sinful. We're worthy. And it's easy to forget that our righteousness, where does our righteousness come by according to Scripture? It comes by and through faith. It comes by faith. We are still reprobates in our flesh. So we are not righteous by, by nature of the condition of our flesh. That has never been righteous. It never will be righteous. It will always be a failure to God. So likewise, the lost that we call the perishing, that those who are going to be destroyed, are not sinful because of their flesh. They are lost because they haven't come to faith. That's the difference. We are waiting for them to come to faith. We aren't looking down on them because they're sinful. Why? Because we're sinful too. We've just been blessed with the reality of faith in our lives. That's a really important thing to carry with you as a Christian because if you carry, oh, those sinners, oh, they are this and that, you automatically create something that is hypocritical because you're a sinner too. You have no right to, to look at the sinful nature of somebody else. You can say, well, I've gotten better. Yeah, you've gotten better, all right. Just be tested a little bit and see how better you've gotten. Just back down. You have been saved by Christ because of your faith. And that has been given to you by God and you received it. They have yet to come to faith. So that's what we talk about with other people. Now the question is, will they come to faith? Oh, well, they better do it here. That's one thing we say. Oh, they'll never have it there. That's another thing we say. 
They're failing in faith, lost in due to blindness, which we've all had in our lives. And when we approach it that way, there is a modicum of humility that comes in our interaction with those who are just in a state that we used to be in. We look at them with that heart and we love them and we're patient and kind with them because we realize it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, not the law and the condemnation of man. It's the goodness of God, right? So, in other words, if a person is a lost sinner, as we like to say, or uh, it merely means they're temporarily separated from the good shepherd because they haven't understood that he's out there as their shepherd trying to get them to join in the flock, and they have said, yeah, I'm not ready for that yet. That's all it is. But that sheep is no more filthy that's outside the flock than the sheep that is in the flock relative to its wool and nose and ears. Right? Luke said, Jesus said in Luke 15, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? That word lost there is the pulame. So we know it doesn't mean destroyed, obliterated. How many of you have a sheep and you have a hundred and one of them goes off? How many of you don't go after the lost one until you find it? Now that's Jesus, God with us, teaching us a parable. And he's, he's likening it to the agrarian, agrestic world of sheep herding. And he says, none of you would do that. And when he's found it, he lays on his shoulder rejoicing. And he says, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice me, I have found the sheep which was lost, the pulame. I say, likewise shall joy be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than 99 just persons who need no repentance. That's always troubled me. Well, it must mean what it says. Heaven's not going uh, bonkers over somebody who's kind of been a good person and loved Jesus and enters heaven. You know, we always expected that. That's your job. You're the prodigal son's brother. You're the guy who's always been with the father, done what was right. Good for you. Come on in. The gospel is to the weak. The hospital is for the sick. And how many of you don't go bonkers when you find and go out until you find that lost sheep? So let's just finish up and talk about the word of Pulamai relative to perish, lost, destroy in the King James, which they took great liberty in messing with us here. Let's use lost here. Let's use perish here. Let's use destroy here when it's all the same Greek word. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3, our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. James 4.12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Those are examples of the King James taking those three different English words and assigning them to the one Greek word, which just means they are in a state of some ruin of some sort. But when you read lost, perish, destroy, we think permanency. Unfortunately, um, that's not consistently applied. For example, my Power Bible software, it suggests that a pool of me says obliterate. It means to wipe out, but that's not true. 
How could you go where you have a lost sheep uh, that is out there obliterated and you're going and searching for it until you find it? Obviously, the sheep wasn't obliterated. Obviously, the woman who lost the coin in her house wasn't searching after an obliterated, destroyed coin. She was searching after one that was being ruined by the, the conditions of the house and turning tarnished so she wouldn't be able to see it in the dark. All these things are playing into that idea. It better means is experiencing some ruin, is experiencing some ruination, some loss, right? That's what it is in the uh, prodigal son when he goes off. Uh, the prodigal son says he was lost. He was experiencing ruin as he was in with the pigs starving and eating their husks. He was not dead and obliterated and gone. So I'm just trying to bring in a contextual analysis of the words so you can see when we talk about perishing, it does not mean what we think. Remember what Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save which is lost, a pool of me. Obviously, the Son of Man doesn't come and save that which has been obliterated. So we can see there has been a misappropriation of that term in Scripture. For those who perished in the apostolic church, those were they who were suffering lost. They were perishing. They were experiencing ruin. They were experiencing a loss of access to God by going to the prison part of Sheol. And they were experiencing being destroyed in the flesh. Think on this. These things were to them in that age who did perish and were destroyed physically by the coming of Christ and were lost, ruined by that process. But that was another age being fulfilled. I suggest that they were all headed to loss and his victory. We are all headed to reconciliation. So let me just bring this out. Uh, and to fulfill that first age, the nation of Israel, people at the time of Jesus, people at the time of the apostles, were all headed toward destruction. Because of the law and the promises given to them, they were headed toward going to the prison part of Sheol, and they were headed toward being destroyed at Christ's coming in 70 AD, where one million one Jews were killed. They were approaching loss, and so the apostles were saying, get saved, get ready, because you will suffer ruin. I suggest that we all start this age, and we start being ruined, and we move, this age moves toward being restored. They started off as being called of God, God's children of Israel, his people, and they suffered destruction. Now we start with being destroyed and we grow toward being uh, received. And I think that's a model that's in the scripture. I want to read some Psalms to you before we wrap it up. Psalms and a couple quotes. Tell me what you think about the tenor of these Psalms or in your mind. God says in Psalm 2, 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, thou art my son, this day I've begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. In Psalms 22, 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. Start with destruction, move to fulfillment. I believe that we are on that, and this age is still being heaped upon us by people who are misinterpreting the scripture. They've gone through that. They face the destruction. We now start off life and it's tough, but we are being saved by the victorious Christ now and then, I would say. And I'm going to talk about that before we wrap it up. So he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee for the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among nations. I believe the Psalms when he says that. 
Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. This is not that despotic God of Calvinism who picks a few and destroys the rest in an eternal screaming fires. This is not any of the religions, really, that are saying, yep, you don't do it here. You're going to burn in hell. It is none of those. These passages in the Psalms describe a God that I look to and trust who will have his way, that all will come to repentance and none will perish. You go to Psalm 65 too. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Can you just throw that out? It says it right there. The psalmist David is citing it by the Spirit. Psalm 68, 18. Thou hast ascended on high and hast led captive, captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Psalms 89, 11, The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. He has let our propensities, our evil, it's played out through his foreknowledge of what we'll do. But in the end, he has been victorious and he will gather together every end of the earth unto himself. That's a victorious God. That's an omnipotent God. That is a God who can accomplish what he set out to do. The rest of it is man-made failures. Psalms 86, 8 through 10. Among the gods there is none like thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. With God all things are possible. Outside of Psalms, one more we read in Isaiah, where he writes in 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. There is not a precursor there that says, while you're on this earth. I'm not talking about another plan of salvation or anything like that. I am just saying that the God of reconciliation, who's had the total victory through his son, will have his way and none will perish and all will come to repentance. That is what scripture says. He wishes that all would be saved. That isn't what he gets. But he certainly will have his will on the other way. I have sworn by myself, thy word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee, this is Isaiah, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. All that are incensed. If every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and you can only confess that Jesus is Lord by the Spirit, then all will have his Spirit, and all will confess, and God will have his way, that none perish, and all will repent. That is his expressed bulamai will. So here Paul says that the sweet savor of his apostolic work is for them that are saved, remember the context, and them that perish that his work is seen as good with God. Those who believed that would be saved, uh, those who believed would be saved from hell and they would be saved from the destruction if they lived for that. And those who didn't would experience ruin, perish, right? I want to wrap up finally by quoting which uh, most uh, Protestant uh, men and women quote to show and set the standard for scripture. So I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm going to quote from four different early church leaders. 130 to 200 AD. This is Irenaeus. And he says, 
I have a belief in, quote, an ultimate reconciliation of all things back to God, end quote. That's an early church father. An ultimate reconciliation of all things back to God. Uh, the ministry of reconciliation, by the way, is going to be addressed in 2 Corinthians, and I can't wait to get to it. It's in chapter 3, I think, next week. Clement of Alexandria, 185 A.D. to 254. Now, that sounds like a long way away, but, you know, we're talking about nearly 100 years. Uh, quote, the Lord is a propitiation not for our sins only, that is, of the faithful, but also for the whole world. Therefore, he indeed saves all universally. This is Clement of Alexandria saying this, not me. But some have converted by punishments, others by voluntary submission, thus obtaining honor and dignity that to him every knee will bow, the things in heaven, the things in earth, the things under the earth. That's scripture, you guys. That is to say the angels and men and souls who have departed this life before his coming into the world, end quote. Origen, 185 to 254 A.D., said, he that despises the purification of the word of God, the doctrine of the gospel, only keeps himself for dreadful and penal purifications afterwards. There's that word purifications, bastinizo, that the Catholics talk about. This is where it comes from. Origen spoke of it. That so the fire of hell may purge him. I don't believe this, but this is his quote. In torments, whom neither apostolical doctrine nor gospel preaching has cleansed, according to that which was written, uh, that they being purified by fire. But how long this purification, which is wrought out by penal fire, shall endure, or for how many periods or ages it shall torment sinners, he only knows to whom all judgment is committed by the Father. As we moved a little away, this quote is saying, now there's going to be this suffering that is in the fiery flames, and it's going to be punitive, etc. But still, it is saying they would be purged after this life. Continuing on, there's about a half a dozen more I could give, uh, which people today scream heresy over. Uh, they're the heretics. They're the heretics. This is not heretical. This is scriptural, and this is uh, off early church fathers' ideas of what was happening way back then. But I want to read from the father of the Reformation, Luther, Martin Luther, who said in 1522, God forbid that I should limit the time of acquiring faith to this present life. In the depth of divine mercy, there may be opportunity to win it in the future. This is a guy who knew his scriptures, folks. So don't get wrapped up in pointing fingers to people about hell forever and ever and all this baloney. Just look, this is a guy who translated the Bible into German, which helped us get our English Bible. He knew his stuff, and he says, God forbid that I would seek to limit it, and if he wouldn't seek to limit it, I mean, that guy was harsh on some people. God would certainly not seek to limit it. Paul wraps it up, 16 and 17. I'm not going to cover them because they're self-explanatory. To the one we, the apostles, are the savor of death unto death, the perishing. And to the other, the apostles are the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who on earth is up to such a task that we are doing here? That's heaped upon apostles. And then he adds... For we, the apostles, are not as many, meaning those people who are false apostles, which, who, corrupt the word of God. But we, the apostles, as of sincerity, but as of God, and in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And it ends chapter 2. Comments, questions, insights. Please.
Larissimo, and welcome back. Say hi to Andrea from Texas. Haven't seen Andrea in a while. And uh, our brother here in the front, Jason. And our sister. What's your name? Robin. That's right, Robin. Ten two. Oh, dang. Well, you're. Well, I'm a lucky man. You guys ready to pray? No questions, comments. All right. Lord, we uh, we pause and we thank you for your word. We pray that we will uh, consider the love that you have shown in loving us so much. You sent your Son to have victory over this fallen place, the second Adam, to bring back in uh, that Edenic state spiritually to our lives if we want it. We pray for those who are outside that state and are still trying to kind of kick against it. We pray for those who have yet come to faith, that we will see them as people who have your full love and that we can be used by you to reach them with the fruit of the Spirit, which is long-suffering and patience and kindness and not with some of the tools that men have uh, uh, created so that we can uh, maybe have a, an effect on people's psyches. We just pray that we will be filled with your spirit as we exit here. We pray that you'll forgive the things that are improper or incorrect that come out of my mouth, but that we will use the teachings to go back to ourselves, open up the word, and consider what you have to say by your spirit to us individually. Uh, we pray for safety and well-being for the children and grandchildren, guidance, that we'll walk the path that the Lord intends. Um, we pray for Parker to see your glory uh, someday in his day. And what a prayer from a mother and a prayer that I join my heart with uh, her for her son. We pray for our children. I pray for my grandsons. Those little guys, they don't know anything but demonic trouble. So I just pray, Lord, that you will step in too. It's a prayer I have in my heart every day, that you'll help those kids to know you before their day is done here on this earth and that they will know you and that they'll come to understand the blessing and fruit of having you in their life today. I pray that for my entire family, for everybody here and their family, for this entire state, for the entire nation, that uh, you'll be able to reach people more and more effectively through the teaching of your word. I pray for Olivia, uh, that she'll understand your word as she studies it. And that's a call that we all have on our lives, that you'll open up your word by the spirit to our minds and hearts and we'll understand it and not be manipulated by our own uh, prejudices or by our own traditions or other men and women who have ideas that are contrary to yours. And Lord, we pray for our, our uh, brothers and sisters who are uh, suffering here in this mortal by that the uh, things that come with loss and death and destruction and, and pain and sorrow and, and not wondering how we're gonna make ends meet and where the next thing is going to come from, those people who have had surgeries, those people who are suffering loneliness, people who are, are struggling with sins of the flesh, that they'll know that they have been forgiven uh, fully by you and that you're there to help them say no through your goodness and that they are okay because uh, you love them and you're there to help them. So let them have uh, encouragement in their walk. Help those who are uh, struggling with loss. It's been on my mind. Many people have been struggling with loss of different sorts and uh, to realize that those losses are but just for this place, which is a lot. And we just pray that your comfort, comforting arms will be around those who have suffered such things. Finally, Lord, I just offer a prayer on behalf of uh, uh, our brother Sam Young, who was excommunicated by letter today. And he's been leading a march uh, to cause a policy change in the Mormon church. 
And uh, I just pray that that will cause Sam to uh, perhaps uh, wake up to the reality of Mormonism, that uh, a policy change will mean nothing when it's a group of people who are seeking for people to establish their own righteousness starting at a very young age. Pray that Sam will see there is no way the institution will change because it's constantly built on this idea that the youth and the teens and the young adults and the adults can be righteous. And so they, they do these interviews and things. I pray that the Mormon church will fall and that it's uh, beguiling uh, um, false gospel will be made known through the events of what he's gone through and other people like him. We pray for him and everybody else involved in the ministry and reaching out to others with truth. In Jesus' name, amen.